Welcome back, everybody, to the Electric Freeze Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McInerney. Hope you're all very well. Now, this week, I'm talking with Craig Kakowski from IO Chicago and IO West. Now, Craig started off at IO in Chicago and then moved to IO West, and he does his own teaching as well as his own directing. He's an incredible teacher. I was lucky enough to do a workshop with him a few years ago in London, and he's also the director of JTS Brown one of the most interesting improv formats I've come across. So I picked his brain about that, about his experiences teaching, performing, and directing. Such a great chat. But without further ado, here's my talk with Craig Kakowski. I find it so hard to improvise over Zoom. How have you found it? It's a different beast, you know. Um... It's uh, it's not quite the improv that that we know and love, but it's a reasonable facsimile for now, you know. Yeah, yeah, just kind of rolling with the punches, as they say. Yeah, I think you lose some of the uh, you know, the nonverbal communication and physicality that's so fun to do. But uh, the interesting thing about doing it into a camera is it's a little more like on camera acting. So you can you actually can communicate with your face, you know, more than you might on stage, you know. It's harder to miss, I yeah. guess, people's uh, people's subtext, you know, when you can see everything in their face. <laughs> this is like the move of an eyebrow says so much now, as exactly. it never said before. That's the hope. <laughs> and Craig, I've always kind of wanted to know, how did, how did you get into performing? Well, uh you know, I always, I was a shy kid, kind of introverted, uh, but I always, like, had this desire to be on stage, which I think my mother kind of recognized at an early age, and she was always kind of signing me up for acting classes, writing classes. My friend and I did uh, puppet shows, like, all through our, our childhood. Really? Yeah. Uh, did you have names for the puppets? Well, they were mostly like our like knockoff uh, Muppets. So like we had a Rolf and a Miss Piggy, and all, but they didn't look that. like Rolf or Miss Piggy at all. <laughs> <laughs> I love that knockoff Muppet. <laughs> yeah, that we were we're not uh, not endorsed by Henson Productions. But, so that's for sure. Yeah, after all the legal issues, you had to call it a day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we got a cease and desist order from Jim Henson. Yeah, he was vicious um, back in the day. <laughs> was your mom a performer? Is that why she was kind of had the idea to get you into it? No, not at all. Uh, she, uh, I, I think, my family just always had a good sense of humor. You know, uh, my, my parents met in the bureaucracy in in Washington D.C. in the sixties. Really know? exciting yeah. time to be in Washington D.C. <laughs> that was an exciting time. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but no, my mom's uh, sold real estate. My dad worked for the uh, for the government. Uh, so when I did like eventually embark on uh, acting as a as a career choice, they were like, "Well, we support you. We have no idea how this business works or, or how to help you, but uh, but we're behind you." But oh, that's I started amazing. Yeah, in in high school, my I was too shy to do anything until my senior year, and then I was the lead in three plays, what? including uh, including Thornton Wilder's Our Town, which every American uh, high school does, and I was the the stage manager who's the narrator of the of that play. So I really kind of got the bug there, and then I went to the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is the second oldest college in America after Harvard. And wow. uh, I was a theater. I was a theater major there, so I did a lot of serious 
stuff like Shakespeare and Sam Shepard and musicals. Uh, but then I joined the, the improv group uh, by my junior year in, uh, in college. And then there's been no looking back since. Wow. So you got into improv at college then. That was your kind of first taste of it. I did, yeah. Th- this was like 1989. Uh, and the group had existed since the mid-80s. And they had been trained in like one three-hour session from a group from Yale that had been trained in one three-hour session from uh, Sharna Halpern, the the owner oh. of the Improv Olympic in Chicago. So yeah. we were doing like Herald and other like Chicago long forms, but it was kind of watered down, uh, you know, because this is all... Uh, through word of mouth, right? Yeah. There's no, there's no internet. There's no truth and comedy or any textbooks that are out there. You yeah. could, uh, you could hunt down a copy of Keith Johnstone's Impro. That was about all that there was in book form. But yeah, it was really only like what we had gleaned from the people who had started the group a few years before us, who had gleaned it from Yale, who had gleaned it from Sharna. Why? Wow. And was this when Sharna was doing mainly short form, or was this like long form that Sharna taught them? I. Uh, it was, it was kind of a, a hybrid, actually, because, okay. you know, Harold was this kind of massive beast that Del Close had been working on since the 60s with the committee in, in mm. San Francisco. And he kind of took it to Chicago in the mid-70s and kept trying to, you know, indoctrinate people into this, <laughs> this weird kind of free-flowy, <laughs> nebulous beast uh, of a form, and Sharna kind of took that form and uh, kind of mapped like short form games over Dell's Herald uh, lack of a structure to create a structure. You know that whole three beat scenes of like you do a beat one, beat two, beat three, kind of usually moving forward in time ahead with the same two characters. That was like based on a, a short form game, which was like kind of beginning, middle, end, or, or something like that. Ah. At, and so, but I think we in college like misunderstood uh, a lot of it. And so like we were doing things like, which I, I think may have been true in Chicago in the early 80s, because that's where we were getting our information from. We were doing like Pet Peeve Rant as a Herald opening. And we, you know, we would do like short form games as the group games, you know, so it really kind of was a hybrid form as we did it in college. Wow. So you're a lot better off than most then. Most people who've done, you know improv at college is just you know not improv at all a lot of the times so it sounds yeah. like you had a decent introduction to it then yeah i mean the vast majority of what we did in college was short form games uh so i, I definitely kind of got got my chops doing that you know three mm. minutes or, or less you know heavy uh gimmick game uh, but we would always do a Herald uh, as well in college. So you, you graduate and you've done some improv with the team. And did you make your way to Chicago or how did you find your way there? Yeah, uh, a bunch of us from the college improv group had made a pact to go to Chicago. Wow. Uh, because one of our members had gone to DePaul uh, School in Chicago before uh, transferring to William and Mary and he was like, there's this place called Chicago and there's, there's, <laughs> there's a theater called the Second City. And, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the home of, of improv. We all need to go there. And we're like, yes. And then everybody backed out at the last minute, oh. except, except me and my friend Christopher, who had been the one who wanted to go. So we got, 
he uh, kind of preceded me out there. He went and secured an apartment for us, and I moved to Chicago in February of 1992. I had never been there in my life, and it was the coldest that I had ever felt <laughs> in my life. Sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> but just... at the time, uh, at the time, I didn't, I didn't know who Sharna Halpern was. I didn't know who Del Close was. Uh, the IO or, or Improv Olympic was, was not that well known at the time. You know, mm. the goal was to go there and I was thinking, you know, cause I have a theater degree, I'll do some serious theater. I'll also maybe try to get into second city. That, that was the goal. From my understanding, uh, Dell was kind of teaching improv from like the mid eighties, but it was like the late eighties, early nineties when IO started getting running and they started doing a lot more classes and teams were forming and that kind of thing. So you were there kind of at the impetus of that really, were you? Yeah, I think it had been around since 1981, but they had been like very itinerant, just like moving from space to space. You know, <laughs> I think by the time I started there, they had maybe had 12 different spaces that they had really, at. you know, that right. was the story of Sharna's life that she would just, uh, she would like secure, some arrangement with a bar owner and then perform there for like six months and then get kicked out, you know? So it, it really was very underground compared to second city. But I think at the time where I moved there, they had, they had found a good space above a bar in Wrigleyville, uh, called the, uh, the Wrigley side where it was the bar. And it was kind of like this sh- shitty space that had been built <laughs> for bands, uh, like this, Shitty little stage, but kind of on a, a platform. But it had a, a couple of flats and a couple of entrances and exits. It actually was a kind of a perfect little stage for for big group long form. And uh, so that's where I first like saw shows and and did shows. And then they had a separate space for classrooms. And this was all just rented. They didn't have a, a permanent space mm. at the time. Got you. And. So you started doing classes with them, presumably, and which teacher stood out to you? Did anyone blow your mind immediately? Well, I only really only had two teachers there, which was Sharna and Dell, because oh, okay. there was there was only there was basically two levels, and then Dell, uh, and you took Dell as long as you wanted to. So level one was Sharna. Uh, I think I had twelve people in my level one, and I think only three of them ended up sticking around for level two. So there was a lot of attrition. Uh, and level two would be Miles Stroth or John Favreau or Kevin Dorf, uh, guys who had, uh, been around the theater for a while at, at that point. So I had like two weeks with Miles as my level two teacher. Then I got into a, a, a play, a drama, uh, where I played one of Walt Whitman's young lovers. Oh, wow. Uh, and how is that? <laughs> you said that so casually. Well, <laughs> That that was the end of my serious acting career in, in Chicago. So I'll, I'll I'll put it that way. So it was the first and the last. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair. I enough. was not very good in the play. The play was not very good, <laughs> and uh, and then I, I just kind of got locked into uh, improv as a as a career choice, <laughs> which I don't recommend. But uh, <laughs> got it. Uh, and, okay. But then because I was in this play, I had to drop out of Miles's class, and Sharon was like, "Well, just just." Go to straight to Dell's class then. So so really, my my only instructors were Sharna and Dell, and then I ended up studying with Dell for about a year. Uh, I took his class five times in a row, I think. Wow! And how did you find Sharna and Dell as teachers? Because I've heard mixed things about Dell as a teacher. Yeah, I think the mixed things are deserved. You know, <laughs> okay. uh, I think they're complicated people with a complicated legacy. 
my experience was that Sharna is a fantastic level one teacher. You know, she really gets people excited about the art form. Uh, and she really makes people feel good right away. Like one of the things that I've taken away from her as a teacher that I try to do with my students is that students learn a lot more from success than they do from failure. So if you have the tools to give somebody success, mm. you know, as opposed to like watching a terrible scene for five minutes and then saying, like, okay, cut, you guys know what you did wrong there? <laughs> you know? Yeah. As opposed to if you can side coach to give them success right away, like let them know what success feels like. So mm. if you can just give somebody a boost in the moment without taking them too much out of the scene or without, you know, destroying the patient in, uh, you know, <laughs> In, in surgery. Yeah. You know? let, let, let them uh, die and then resurrecting them. <laughs> exactly. How was that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you just, you know, give them the side coach and give them that slight adjustment. So that, that was what Sharna was good at. And uh, that's what I really took away. Also, it was so tiny back then, the whole scene, that I got on stage right away. I was on a team three weeks into level one. And so I was also getting rehearsals and stage time to complement the classes right away, which is something that now, you know, uh, it's harder for students to, to find that stage time. So that really helped my development immensely. And then Dell was kind of the, the professor, you know, it was like studying quantum physics with Einstein. You're like, Oh, th this is, this is the guy who invented this. You know, Why? so, so he, you know, he understands it and knows it better than anyone. And I think he was the, the person really kind of pushed the idea of improv as art. Um, now sometimes the classes would, uh, tend too much on the artsy side as opposed to the comedy side, you know? How so? Like, uh, can you give us an example? I mean, he he liked to do this, uh, not even a form really, but this thing called the ritual where, you know, he would just encourage people to kind of like chant and uh, he would dim the lights and people would just like bang on chairs. Uh, and when it was over, he'd be like, how long, uh, how long do you think you were up there? And he'd be like, uh, I don't know, uh, 25 minutes? He'd be like, it was 28. And I... <laughs> I actually I don't did know. that when I was at I.O. Uh, Tara DeFrancisco did that with us. It is a very trippy experience. <laughs> yeah. I, so I think like he's trying to like get it back to like its primeval roots, you know, <laughs> like just improv as a group experience, you know, and then as a religious experience also. So why? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he definitely was a comedy guru, but I think by the by the time I was studying with him, he was not so concerned about the comedy of improv he was interested in getting it you know larger human truths somehow like he definitely would would laugh but he wasn't giving you like uh tips to make your scene funnier like he was pushing you to go deeper into characters and relationships and and find the uh the the metaphors you know and you know, statements behind your scenes, you know, they had to be about something. Got you. So if you did a very surface level scene that was very funny, he wouldn't be happy at the end of it because you oh, yeah. found it any depth? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was notorious for kicking people out of class uh, for, it's almost like the, you know, 
punch the biggest guy in the prison yard <laughs> mentality, which is like whoever the biggest nightmare was on the first week of class, he would be like, all right, you're not ready for this. So I'm going to write you a check uh, to give you your money back and please leave and never come back. Why? <laughs> Now, I'm pretty sure that he did not have a bank account, or if he did, that his check would not be good. (laughs) But it was the gesture. (laughs) It was the gesture that meant everything. Yeah. I think Sharna probably had to deal with the refund. (laughs) But he would would make a show of of writing out the check and, and barring the person from the room. Freddie didn't even write his name on the check, just like Mickey Mouse. There you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what was your big takeaway from Dell then as a teacher? Because it sounds like it was uh, quite an, an eclectic experience. Yeah, I think it was always very experimental. Like we were always kind of trying out his newest ideas uh, and that, that was really exciting. Mm. And so I think the... The ability to fail and to kind of test your limits uh, and that rehearsal and the classroom, you know, is, is really where the developments get made. You know, I think even as harsh as he was and as scary as he was, it did weirdly feel like a safe space to experiment. Um, and I always like took away, like treat the audience like poets and geniuses and they will rise to that occasion was like uh i think i'm paraphrasing him but that that was basically his idea you know which is like you don't need to cater or sell out to an audience they will rise to your level uh which is something i've really tried to you know communicate to my students and to hold true in my own work as well you were kind of thrown into the deep end to a certain extent with dell but it was sounded like it was very creative dynamic environment for you to kind of develop creatively yeah, I mean, thrown to the deep end is a good analogy. And, like, I, I really do have to stress, like, how uh, amazing it was to get that stage time, you know. What was the first team you were in then after, after having done the levels and trained with Dell and all that? Well, I would say, like, my first five or six teams were not memorable at all. <laughs> why okay that is a bold answer i love it yeah uh and my very first team like hardly any of those people stuck around longer than a couple months after that like it was a very like the the faces were always changing back then you know not that many people stuck around for long and sharna was constantly reshuffling the teams around into different combinations like it was kind of like once you were in you were in you know you had to be like egregiously bad to get cut Mm. uh but the the main team at the time was uh was the family uh which was like adam mckay ian roberts matt besser uh miles joth ali faranakian and uh eventually neil flynn i was on a team with neil flynn Wow. For a while, called called Naked Aggression, uh, which I, which <laughs> I think name. is a pretty pretty good team name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that was kind of like part of the learning in a way, which is like you were constantly with new people. You would get assigned a new coach, you know, and uh, not everyone's goals or abilities were the same, you know. 
so, but I think like that, that's a good learning experience as well to like just be up there with as many people as possible. Cause every, in improv, every person is their own little puzzle to figure out. You have to learn how to play with, with everyone and to, uh, to get on their level and to, to get inside their head to figure out how you can have fun with them. You know, I wasn't always good at that back then, but at least I got that experience. Finally, after about a year of being shuffled around different teams, I was on a team called Mr. Blonde. Uh, <laughs> I love these names the, so far. Yeah. <laughs> and we're named after the Michael Madsen character from Reservoir Dogs. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and who was in this team? Uh, anybody you played with later on? Uh, eventually Rich Salarico, who would be one of my, my major partners in my improv life, uh, who I'm on Dasariski with, he wasn't on the original team. N- neither was I actually, I was, uh, kind of the first person to, to join after it had been established. Um, Ed Herpsman, who eventually founded the, uh, the Magnet Theater in New York was, was on that team. John Rosenfeld, who founded Boom Chicago in Amsterdam, and he's been, working and living in uh, the Netherlands for the last 25 plus years. Uh, those were, those were some of the original people on that team. Rob Mello, who is a, a director in uh, Atlanta now, you know, pretty, pretty well respected in the improv world. Oh, well, eventually Tina Fey was on that team. I don't why? know why, why I'm forgetting her, but uh, yeah. Just casually dropping that in at the end. <laughs> you, Tina I Fey, did. you may have heard of her. <laughs> I didn't want to stop start with the name drop, you know. <laughs> I won't. So was that there like were a lot of there were a lot of people on that team. Uh, it, but we we kept the same name and stayed together as a core for a couple of years, which was great. So after kind of all the shuffling around and the difficulties with the other teams, what was it like, Mister Blonde? Did you feel it developed you as a team player? Yeah, that was kind of the first time. First of all, just to be really given a chance to grow with the same group of people, just makes a big difference you know who knows what some of those other teams could have been if we had been allowed to stay together you know Mm. uh and we had really good coaches we had uh matt besser at first and then we had pete gardner uh and each of them we did about a year with each of them and they both really pushed us and uh and challenged us and uh it just it really felt like an ensemble um just out of curiosity, what was Matt Besser's coaching style? Because I've seen him obviously perform on like TV and stuff doing the ASCAP, but like, is is he a very cerebral coach? Is he more like playful? He is kind of a mix of cerebral and playful. Um, he was kind of like uh, tough love, you know, like really? you could really feel that he was supportive and like wanted you to do well, but also like he wouldn't hesitate to give you a really harsh note if you deserved a really harsh note. So you knew that if you were getting the same with Dell, if you're getting positive notes from him, uh, those, those were hard to get. So they were really meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, but he was also experimental as well. And I think like, the whole game of the scene thing that is the basis of the UCB uh, philosophy that he kind of, you know, uh, is the, the brains behind. I think he was still kind of perfecting and, and honing his take on that. So uh, I, I don't think it was as solid as UCB would, would teach it now, but it definitely was in its nascent form uh, kind of what he was working on with, with us. But I think... Also, like just doing a good herald 
was kind of the the goal for all of the the teams. You know, it was really about the form as a whole, uh, and 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 about you know kind of doing something big and interesting with the the piece. You know, it was comedy, but it was also a performance art piece of of sorts. You know, I think Matt emphasized the comedy more, as as did Pete. But the idea of it being a theatrical piece that a group does together was always kind of baked baked into the theater at that time. Got you. Okay, wow. Obviously, you mentioned already that you know you were keen to get into Second City, and you obviously wrote, performed, and directed multiple reviews at Second City. You know, how was that? How did you get into there? How did that happen? Yeah, I think. It's actually interesting because the first three years I was in Chicago, I got so indoctrinated into the I.O. scene. <laughs> you know? I love and... you've used brainwashed and indoctrinated twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you got PTSD from your early yeah. days in Chicago. <laughs> I always like to say that improv is a benign cult. <laughs> uh, though I think for some people it's not that benign, you know, so that that's that's a whole other can of worms. But I think that it's not accidental that these terms are being used, you know. Um, I was going to say, there's a pattern definitely emerging. Yeah, but for me it's, it's relatively benign. Um, but I, in those first three years there, like rather than like taking class at Second City or seeing shows or kind of hustling to get recognized over there. I think I adopted the the mindset of most of the people at Iowa, which is just like fucking sellouts, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the sellout theater, you know? Uh, I'm an tr- artist. <laughs> yeah, the true artists were at Improv Olympic, you know? Okay. Uh, and so I, I would occasionally go there. You could see the improv sets for free, you know? I was so poor back then that the tickets for the shows were so prohibitively expensive. Um, but you could always go and attend their improv sets for, for free. And I had a lot of friends who would like do the whole class structure there. I would always go to see their level five shows. They were always terrible. Um, (laughs) and I was like, eh, I I don't want to do this. I don't want to turn improv into sketch comedy, which is kind of their, their philosophy. But then, uh, my friend Vicky dragged me to uh, somebody's last night because last nights are always big at Second City because you, you're kind of like, you're graduating out there into the showbiz world and it's usually because somebody has booked a job or they've just lasted too long at Second City and it's time for them to, to move on. But it so was, it could be uh, joyful or bittersweet. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually a mix of both. Um, but uh, it was Stephen Colbert's last night at Why? Second City. And because uh, I think he and Amy Sedaris and Paul Danello were starting this show called Exit 57, which would, was going to be shot in New York and uh, aired on Comedy Central, uh, which even back then was pretty obscure. But I think for sketch comedy nerds uh, who can track it down, you can see most of the sketches on on YouTube. It's pretty great. And it includes some stuff that they had written at Second City uh, as well. But I had never seen Stephen Colbert. They did some of his best of sketches, you know, which you usually do as like your goodbye uh, to Second City, like your favorite sketches that you did over your time there. Uh, And then he gave a speech. Uh, You know, you give a speech, you cry, you get a pie in the face. Like that's how it always ends at at Second City. Oh, why? I didn't know that. (laughs) And I, I was I was so moved by his speech, you know. I, I just thought he was so like inspirational and like such an incredible performer that I'm like, I I want that. Like now I see 
the appeal of this, you know. And of course, like this is in front of 350 people on the main stage of Second City, so it's it's hard not to uh, get enamored by the idea of like that could be me up there on, on that big stage, you know. So th- I started to want it more after wow. that. And I, the only thing you can audition for, at least at the time, was to be an understudy to the touring company, uh, is the only thing that they, and they do the once a year, and people come from all over the country, and a lot of those people are nightmares and have never <laughs> taken an improv class in their life, you know. So that was um, a fun experience, I bet. <laughs> yeah. So I did that general audition twice and like tanked both times. One time, because I knew that Second City dressed up more, I wore, like, later my friend Noah, who was one of the directors at the time, was like, you wore a zoot suit to your audition. And it's like, it was... <laughs> you wore a zoot suit. It wasn't quite a zoot suit, but it was, it was the only suit I owned, which just, like, had huge shoulder pads and, like, was just ridiculous. And I looked so uncomfortable and so out of place because I thought, like, well, Second City's the suit and tie place. Um... But eventually they had like a like a closed off audition because they had had a lot of people leave uh, and they, they had a lot of slots that needed filling. So they kind of had a special invitation only audition of like the top 30 improvisers in the city who weren't already working at Second City. And so I was given a little more time to play there. I was given a chance to do like a best of sketch where like you're assigned a partner, here's the script, like go out and uh, work on this and then we'll we'll take a look at your script. And so uh, by the and also by that time, like I didn't didn't give a shit as much. Like I had <laughs> I had failed the audition twice. Like I showed up this time in just like jeans and a flannel. You burned the like, suit. <laughs> yeah. I showed up late too. Like I missed my bus to get there and like showed up like a little late for the warm up and everything. Why so check I was... you being a total rebel. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly that's how I got in because I was more relaxed and I didn't care so much. Why? And and I was just I think more confident as a performer from my years at I.O. at that point. Well, it must have been flattering in itself being selected for the thirty, you know, to come in. So obviously that would make you a bit more confident in itself. Yeah, at that point, like some of the directors and performers there were people that I knew from I.O. and who knew me. So that also helped to know that there are people who are already familiar with with what I could do. Got you. So after that audition, then you're in the touring company. Is that right? Yeah, I started as an understudy to the Torco. So you kind of like go and like attend the rehearsals just in case you're needed to go in. Uh, and then I started to fill in for Kevin Dorf a bunch in his company. And eventually when he got, you know, it, it kind of works like it's a, it's a chain effect, uh, domino effect, because, you know, one person leaves the main stage, person gets promoted from ETC, which is the smaller stage to main stage person from Torco gets promoted to ETC to fill that slot. So when Kevin got promoted to main stage to fill Adam McKay's spot, who had left for SNL, wow. I stepped into the Torco to fill in for, for Kevin. So I got, got that spot and I toured for about two and a half years. And how did you find Torco? Because my understanding of Torco, I've never seen it, but you're doing the best of Second City sketches in kind of more remote parts of the Midwest and kind of America. Is that right? That's pretty damn accurate, Sean. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Why, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, we always kind of begged and pleaded to get to do some of our original sketches and occasionally they would throw us a bone. But yeah, mostly you're doing uh, proven 
best of Second City material, which honestly is mostly stuff from the previous couple of years, which I think is good because some of that Second City stuff does not age so well. You know, it's <laughs> it's <laughs> it's social and political satire, and sometimes it's kind of locked into the era in which it was created. You know, oh, yeah, that it's, sounds problematic. It's, like it's like a decade old or something. Oh, oh I mean. Even then, when problematic was not in our vocabulary, like there's there's things that were like this is not something we should be we should be doing, and and certainly like you're not going to do stuff about like Vietnam War protests or anything like that, you know. Um, I love that. In the in 1992, yeah, so yeah. Vietnam, everybody. <laughs> uh, and then you do a mix of like short form games and uh, and best of material, and yeah, you're mostly doing colleges. And like performing arts centers and in, in smaller towns, it is mostly in the Midwest. I went to uh, Ohio and Iowa way more than uh, I, I would ever want to. Um, <laughs> Not a fan, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's something wonderful in every state. I'll say that as the <laughs> as my diplomatic uh, Love response. It. But uh, any horror stories from Turco? Did you ever have like a gig where you're like, Jesus, I'm glad that's over. Well, I've probably wiped those out of my mind, but you know, uh, I would say they were more more horrible than than not. You know, really. Uh, well, no, that that's unfair. But it's it's a mixed bag, you know. Uh, and it really, you, you'd show up and you'd get anywhere from like. Uh, you know, the local paper has already written an article about you in, in advance. You know, people are, uh, Second City comes every year to this town. They're so excited for that show to, you know, you meet your contacts at the uh, at the college and they're like, oh, was that today? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, okay, you're going to be in the cafeteria. Oh, um, Jesus. <laughs> you know, it, it really, it was such a wide range of quality of venues and quality of audiences, you know, and the degree to which people were expecting you or not, you know, it's always better to go into a situation where people are expecting you Oh yeah, um, and want to see you as opposed to of like, okay, what is this, you know, um, <laughs> later they would create this BizCo uh, arm of the theater specifically to do corporate gigs but back then we were doing a fair amount of corporate gigs and it's usually because like the events coordinator for this corporation has overplanned the weekend and be like we we need to get a comedy group and so nobody knows who you are or why you're there they're drunk they're laughing amongst themselves already they oh, don't geez. want you there you know oh i do here's a good horror story we my Torco was selected to do uh, the 50th anniversary of Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, which is a prestigious architecture firm based in Chicago, but with offices all around the world. And one of their signature buildings is the John Hancock Center in Chicago, which is wow. right on the lake. It's like 100 floors high. It's one of the tallest buildings in the world. And there's this beautiful... Uh, dining room on the 95th floor with sweeping views of all of Chicago. It's spectacular. And these are all of the, the architects and the executives from all over the world for Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. And we were like, are we doing custom material? Because sometimes you would do like sketches that have been written specifically for that event. Uh, and they were like, no, just do your regular, your regular Torco show. At the time, we were doing a scene that had been written by Stephen Colbert and, and Dave Rizowski and Steve Carell uh, from one of their casts. And it was this, this scene where Colbert is leading like this 
um, self-help group full of uh, full of losers, you know. So it's like it's a good, you know, you call them geek scenes, which is like one authority figure and a bunch of weirdos, you know. Uh, so. <laughs> Um, and in this scene, the, the Colbert character has a line where he's like, he's doing a hypothetical and he's like, okay, you're walking down Michigan Avenue and a sheet of plate glass gets sheared off of the, the Hancock Center and comes down and cuts you in half. Oh my God. And this always played really well in Chicago because people knew the reference and it was funny within the context of that sketch. Yeah. Now take that sketch that we had been doing for months without even thinking about it and do it. <laughs> At the 50th anniversary dinner for the people who built that building, including probably the architect who had designed it. And this, I think, was the third sketch in the show. Oh. So, so we went into basically into their house and said, fuck you and your building. <laughs> they don't know that we just do this sketch every time and didn't think that it was specifically for them. So I'd never seen an audience who had been so excited to see us turn off so quickly. So why it, it is always helpful to know your audience and to know the content of your show. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I bet you dined out in that story so much after that. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I had for years, but completely forgotten about it till now. Thanks for thanks for letting that resurface. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I didn't mean for you to pick up that old wound. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. Um, so you you did Torco, and then presumably you go to ETC, and then you go to main stage. Is that how it happened for you? Yeah, not everybody necessarily follows that pattern. Some people will go straight to main stage from Torco, but yeah, I did three reviews on the ETC, uh, which performs four nights a week, six shows a week, and. Uh, that's about a 180 seat house. And then the main stage performs six nights a week, eight shows a week, uh, about a 350 seat house. Wow. And did you find a big difference when you went from ETC to main stage in terms of like pressure and audiences, or did you feel it came quite naturally? The, a couple main differences are that the ETC being the smaller stage is a little more of the spillover crowd, i.e. it's the people who couldn't get into the main stage. <laughs> oh, but that doesn't rub you raw at all. <laughs> yeah. So the vast majority of people who go to see Second City in Chicago are like, business people and tourists who are coming through town and know that second city is a thing to see but a lot of them don't even realize that it's sketch and improv comedy they think they're seeing stand up or they don't know what they're seeing exactly um, um in addition to like chicagoans who you know have gone for years with their families and know exactly what it is in addition to like comedy nerds you know and aspiring performers who you know want want to be there so those are factions as well but the ETC was easily the harder crowd. You know, the main stage just feels a little more like an event. Sometimes the ETC would not fill up, you know, but it, it led the theater to be a little more experimental, you know. So I think the, the reviews that I did there were push the form a little more and push the content uh, a little more. Uh, so and all of this, by the way, you know, when you're performing that much, and failing that much, um, <laughs> you know, you, you learn to, uh, to kind of ride through the suck a little bit and to, to push ahead. And if you can survive, you know, uh, a sketch bombing, an improv scene bombing, you know, an audience, an entire audience for an entire show, just not 
being into you, but you know that you, you still have a job, you know, you're going to wake up the next day. You're going to, you're going to go to the theater and see your friends that you're performing with again. You know, it, it bonds the casts together as well. So, um, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's not war, <laughs> but I think we, the cast does bond together in a way that troops do during wartime. You know? I, uh, I'd say it depends on the audience how closely it resembles wartime. Yeah, yeah. I just I don't want to strain the analogy or, or denigrate the contributions of soldiers who have it much harder, you know. But I think there's a similar bonding experience that goes on. Oh yeah, I, I totally, I totally understand that. And how did you find moving to directing after having wrote and performed at Second City for so long? Well, one of the advantages I had at IO was that I was coaching like almost immediately after becoming a performer. Like, uh, like about a year after I started there, I was assigned a team to coach, and that's kind of crazy to be given like that responsibility. Uh, but Really, for like people in smaller communities that are like, when should I? When should I coach? When should I teach? I'm like, well, when you know slightly more than somebody else, you're good to go. You know? <laughs> wow, that must have been quite daunting, was it? It was, but it was exciting as well, because especially you know when you're 25 and you've been doing nothing but thinking about improv for the last couple of years, you know, uh, you're like, I've got things to say. You know, I, I have opinions. Um, <laughs> And, and getting, you know, put into a position of authority, you know, of like that, that's exciting as well. I think in those early days of coaching, like I would overdo my lesson plans, you know, I would prepare way more than I could ever do. I would give notes for forever. I still have some of my notebooks from those days and it's like written in this beautiful longhand cursive of like, how was I even watching the scene if I was writing these notes, you know? Um, so I don't know what I was telling people back then uh i must have been helpful enough because uh definitely i'm still good friends with a lot of the people that i i coached uh that that team is called frank booth and some of the players on there are people like paul grandi uh liz allen kevin mulaney uh lily francis who kind of became legendary teachers in their in their own right in the chicago scene uh so, so I coached them, then I started teaching a couple years after that. So I think my coaching ability kind of uh, gave me uh, a little more freedom and, and confidence when I started teaching. So it was kind of, it's kind of a, a progression. And then directing feels like a higher level than, than teaching uh, also. I never got to direct a full uh, you know, review on the ETC or the, the main stage. I left Chicago too early. And some of my friends that have uh, uh, done that have gone back since to, uh, to direct reviews. And uh, I always secretly kind of like wanted, uh, wanted to do that, you know, because I, I obviously, as somebody who'd gone through the process many times, I have opinions about how it should be done. You know? <laughs> uh, but I did get to direct Torcos. I got to direct uh, Boats for Second City. I've directed student reviews and, and stuff like that, as well as like directing long form shows, which is its own beast. Wow. So post COVID could be seeing Craig Kukowski directing the next second city review. Uh, it's that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what they say? Never say never. Never say never. You're right. And uh, so you, you get into teaching. What did you focus on as a teacher when you were starting out, Craig, anything in particular? The very first class I was assigned to teach was at the time we had an, we had an entire level devoted to the movie form, uh, 
which is something it's not done very often because it's very difficult and it it demands a lot of preparation. Not to say that there aren't people who do narrative long forms with movies, but this was a very specific form that the family had developed with Dell, where you like call out different shots, you know, cut to overhead shot, you know, and so it's uh, it involves not only knowing the structure and tropes of different movie genres, but being able to uh, kind of narrate it with camera shots and camera angles. That and sounds so cool. It must have been interesting to watch. It's it was a fantastic form. Uh, the family always nailed it. Like it was, the, they did a show called Three Mad Rituals, where they would do an hour and a half long form show that was three long forms in a row with what? one intermission. And so they would do the deconstruction, uh, which Miles Stroth is kind of his signature piece, but it was something that the family developed with Dell and uh, the the movie. And they would end on a on a herald, and they would get the same suggestion for all three forms, and kind of do them consecutively. Really? That yeah. Must, they must have been exhausted after doing it, three consecutively, basically. It, it was to this day the most impressive, you know, marathon of of improv that I've ever seen one team do. Paul Valancourt developed that level, and so I was teaching Paul's curriculum. So it was kind of easy as a way of get, getting into it, which is like, okay, he's got a very, uh, you know, from week to week, he does exactly these exercises. So mm. um, so it, it was years before I kind of developed my own curriculum. And then I started teaching Harold, and I think I was following somebody else's curriculum there too. And I think that's good for teachers to start out, which is like, you don't need to worry about the lesson plan. Uh, here it is for you. You can put your own spin on it, but these are the things that you're supposed to do. But then gradually over the years, I've kind of, you know, regardless, you know, I, I taught for years at both Second City and IO, and regardless of what I was supposed to be teaching, I would do a lot of the same stuff, you know, <laughs> because Second you, City loved that. Yeah. I don't think they ever knew, you know. <laughs> um, well, they do now. <laughs> yeah, they do now. I'm definitely burning bridges. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean... If it, if it's a character level, you know you're doing character exercise. It's not like I'm doing like uh, you know fuck characters. We're doing gonna do. Uh, you know, do you mean this this format the movie? It's awesome. Right? We're gonna do. We're gonna do the movie. Um, but you know you, you kind of develop your own pet exercises, either things that you've come up with yourself or tweaks on standard exercises that other people have developed, and you have your take on them. So. Over the years, kind of through trial and error, I've kind of found my own exercises and curriculums that I'm good at teaching uh, and that emphasize the things that I want to emphasize. Um, and uh, and I think that's how it should be. You know, you, you want to get... You want to get that teacher's perspective on things. You want to get the tools that they are most equipped to, to teach you, you know, uh, rather than somebody who's kind of following blindly somebody else's uh curriculum oh yeah 100 percent. because i mean alone the passion comes through when the teacher's teaching something they really believe in or they're really interested in so that that always engages students more than anything but as well like having done an intensive with you in london um i thought it was great because what i loved about the the class we did with you was you focused on like characters and scene work and formats and you know it was very uh diverse it wasn't like we were just doing one thing for the entire week it felt like we were doing multiple things simultaneously but you explained them in such detail that you felt like you were in depth on every element 
Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, I had a great experience in London at the FA uh, teaching uh, those intensives. I did two intensives in two weeks there. And it's interesting because, you know, you've got uh, you've got London actors, you know, who are a lot of whom have had drama school, you know, and are like very well versed in uh, doing serious theater and doing voices and accents and, and characters. Yet most of their instruction to that point had been more UCB game of the scene style, you know. So I think that was kind of like ingrained in them as improvisers. Like they got the 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 verbal wit and the writing aspects of it, but they weren't tapping into their acting uh, strengths as much. So after kind of seeing like what I was dealing with there, I think I did really kind of emphasize the more acting side of improv, you know, because they had the writing side down you know and i think it's very much a yin yang art form right like you want to get somebody to get the perfect blend of being an actor and a writer at the same time you know no absolutely and like again that's a sign of a good teacher as well where you're not going in like you're not working out a lesson plan in advance getting there and just doing it regardless you know you were gauging what was required for this group and then doing it accordingly and that's always a sign of a good teacher in my opinion yeah, I think also like getting feedback from people and, and and that's something that over the years I've tried to do in like honing exercises, which is like, don't tell them of like, well, you just learned this. How do you know they learned that? Like, <laughs> you got to You got to ask them that, you know, so of like I, I really try to get feedback from people of like, what did you take away from that? What did you notice? Like. Uh, especially if it's a newer exercise or something I'm experimenting with, like don't presume what you think it teaches. Like you've got to find out what they're actually getting from that. And then you can start, now you start to know how to frame the exercise, how to introduce it successfully, how to side coach it successfully. You know, is this something where you kind of let everybody doing it, do it before commentary or do you comment after each individual scene? You know, yeah. uh, that, that's something that's always kind of a push pull with teachers of like how much to talk and how much to shut up i i like to err on the side of like giving people as much stage time as possible but then then being pointed in my observations you know yeah yeah i mean i i've coached teams and i fell fell into the trap of giving too much feedback after and then you realize you're kind of bombarding them when it's like all right if i just give them a few key things they're happy and then they can move on to the next group and that kind of thing yeah and especially like you know, frame the exercise correctly too. So you know, usually most improv exercises, you're isolating a muscle, you know, and you're not saying of like, uh, I want you to do this every time or this needs to be in every scene, but this is a muscle that is handy a lot of the time and you'll, you'll know when you need it. And then when you run the scenes, like don't think of them as scenes so much as like this is an exercise where we're drilling this one specific skill set. You don't need to do 40 things right. You only need to do this one thing right. And that way, when you're giving notes or, or feedback, it can be filtered through. These are the things I told you that we were going to work on with this. If, uh, if for instance, like their specificity wasn't good or their object work wasn't good, that doesn't need to be in the notes for that exercise unless it's really egregious in, in some way, you know? Yeah. You're kind of laughter like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I totally agree. And I think that's a lot more um, 
encouraging as well because it's not like you're, you're making them go into a scene thinking right i need to do this 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 and this you're saying right i just want you to focus on this in the scene and then the scene like you did that with us in the intensive the scenes were hysterical because everyone was losing themselves in it more because they were just knowing they had to kind of focus on one element and they just naturally did everything else yeah like it's back to that trying to help her and like people learn more from success than failure too and it's like the golf swing analogy, which is you can break down the components of a golf swing and say of like, well, you got to keep your head down. Of like, well, keep your left arm straight, you know, uh, keep your feet still, or like these are all things that you're supposed to do. But ultimately, what you really need to do is take swing after swing after swing, and you can uh, you can single out one of those components at a at a time if you're working on that specific thing. But one of the other things will fall by the wayside then. But you have to take swing after swing after swing to just know what a good swing feels like. Uh, and then it becomes unconscious that you're doing all those individual components right. Now, that takes a while, obviously, for golfers to get to. It takes a while for improvisers to get to as well. And some people, those skill sets are natural for them. Others feel very difficult, you know. And so everybody, uh, as a student, is their own little puzzle to figure out uh, as well, you know. Yeah. Uh, you got you to push them or, or pull them in, in different ways, you know, uh, depending on their innate strengths. And weaknesses so would you kind of coach or teach uh looking at different individuals as opposed to looking as at it as an ensemble in the sense that you'd be like all right this person needs kind of more pushing in this area this person needs to ease back on this would you kind of more focus on it like that yeah it, it depends on the ensemble um like if i've been assigned a a team to coach that is brand new from scratch you know mm. that as would happen occasionally like here's a new herald team they were just formed in auditions you know the first thing you've got to do is build trust among them and create a group mind uh and so at that point you're not that worried about the individual skill sets of the players you're trying to get them in the habit of being supportive of each other and feeling like an ensemble first you know particularly for those like theater created teams it's like this is your family now (laughs) it's like get used to them um as opposed to like a team that somebody has formed of them and their friends you know in that case the trust is already there the bond is already there the familiarity is already there Mm. um and so i might give more individual notes in in that case God, yeah, well, obviously it's a case-by-case basis, but that makes total sense. When did uh, JTS Brown come into play? Was that when you were coaching, or was that when you'd already been teaching for a while? I'd already been teaching for a while. That was in the late 90s in Chicago, and that was a group that had kind of formed themselves as a rehearsal group, uh, i.e. these were some of the people who were the the best young players at the time they they mostly ranged from like 19 to 25 you know uh the, uh, this was Ike Barinholtz and Jason Sudeikis founded the uh the team wow. um and some of them maybe had started to tour with Second City but i think most of them kind of like had felt like they had done everything there was to do at IO uh they had gotten on some good teams but they're kind of like wondering like what's next how how do we get better and so it was like 14 of them too. TJ was in that group. Yeah, I spoke uh, to TJ about it. It was great. Like he kind of spoke about his own experiences, you know, performing in it. But obviously I, he said, you're the man to speak to about JTS Brown ultimately. All right. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm flattered. Um, 
And so I, I think they had the goal of like get together as a as a practice group uh, with no concrete, you know, dates to perform or, or, or anything. And so at first they were working with Mick Napier. And, ah, and I didn't Mick, realize Mick Napier was involved in it. Yeah. Um, I think they had just a few weeks with Mick and then Mick ended up getting busy, maybe directing a main stage show or, or other commitments in Chicago. And so they brought me in to sub for one week and the team, along with the family who I've mentioned a few times, the other team that really influenced me in Chicago was a team called Jazz Freddy, which had been in the early 90s. And that was like Noah and Pete Gardner and Brian Stack, Dave Keckner, Rachel Dratch, Kevin Dorf, uh, bunch of bunch of incredible people. And they did very character-based, slow, two-person scenes, but as a large group. And they had kind of had this mythic rehearsal period where they had like worked on the show for nine months, three rehearsals a week, three hours of rehearsal without showing it to anyone what they were yeah, developing. I couldn't believe it when TJ was saying that. That's mental. They're trying to get a group to do once a week. <laughs> it's usually a hassle. I couldn't believe it when I heard that. It's insane. And for everyone to like make it their top priority. Um, and so I had actually gone through a rehearsal process like that with Noah called Close Quarters. And that was me and Bob Dassey and Rich Salarico from Dasariski and Stephanie Weir. Uh, I was actually going to ask you about you, that. that, that, that <laughs> I was actually going to ask about Close Quarters next. I didn't realize Close Quarters was before JTS. It was Brian. before. It was before JTS. So we we adopted the same kind of principles as Jazz Freddy of like that long rehearsal period, mm. and and that was the show where I, I felt like the biggest jump in my ability level came during that rehearsal process. And uh, as, as tough as Noah was on that, we, were, we created this really difficult, challenging form uh, that even in the best shows was still never quite as good as it was in our best rehearsals. You know, Really? I, I still remember some of those scenes that we did in rehearsals as being like among the most memorable of my improv life, you know, and you're like, Oh, if only somebody was there to, to see this, but it, it, it had been an enormously rewarding process to, to go through. And so after one rehearsal with JTS Brown, they were so good. I'm like, okay, I need to direct you. And, uh, we need to go into this rehearsal process and we're going to create a form. Uh, and so, we needed to adapt a form to something uh, as large as their group was. Again, they had 14 people, which even among Herald teams, there were some Herald teams that were like 11 people, but uh, that was the exception to the rule. Like this was a huge ensemble. At the time, the most popular form in Chicago was the, or the most popular show was the Armando show, which was uh, on Monday nights. It would be upstairs in the Del Close Theater. And it had a very casual feel to it in that the performers were sitting on the side of the stage in chairs. Uh, if if you saw Miles get up from his chair and go back behind the flats, you'd be like, okay, Miles is about to do a walk-on. Cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, that is just was the, the performers being kind of part of the show on the sidelines was almost kind of baked into that form. And it, it was designed as a form that anybody – any experienced player who was like visiting from out of town or like had left Chicago and was coming back could step in. It was easy to do, easy to explain to someone. So it it almost was JTS became the reaction to the Armando because we'd be performing in the same space. I didn't want the audience to know how big the cast was. 
Um, <laughs> I didn't want to see the cast when they weren't in a scene. So everybody kind of hid behind the, the flats backstage. And I wanted it to be an immersive experience of filling the entire space with with lights and sound and, and movement. And what, what and gave you that uh, idea, though? What kind of was the, the driving force behind that? I think, I mean, it's partially to have something to react against in a way. You know, it's mm. I was in the Armando show. It wasn't like I disliked the show. I'm just like, this is what people know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is going to be different, you know. Um, it's like the Jean Luc Godard line of like the best way to criticize a movie is to make another movie. You know? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love that. So it's like eh, if you didn't like that about that movie, make your movie different. Then you know. <laughs> um, or the uh, I always also think of JTS Brown as the Velvet Underground, you know, of uh, of improv shows. Because they say about the Velvet Underground's first album, like only 5,000 people bought it, but all of those people started a band. I um, love it. It's like when the Beatles aired on, uh, uh, was it Sullivan Show? And then and, and the next day, everybody was starting a rock band, apparently. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I hope the JTS <laughs> inspired people in that way. Um, but also a lot of it just came from like figuring out their strengths in rehearsal and seeing what they wanted to do. And they were constantly bringing in ideas and, and techniques. And I think what I asked them was like, what's something you've never seen in an improv show before, you know, or what's something you did once accidentally. And now we can codify it a little bit and like make it a part of the form. So it's almost like all those happy accidents that come up in group improv that you're like, that was so cool when that happened of like, how can we turn those into like regular devices? And so it was kind of like this free flowing uh, dreamlike form uh, where all the scenes bled into each other. There were no like no sweep edits, no tag outs, no walk ons. Uh, you know, if somebody, if it was you and I in the first scene and then Carla wanted to start a second scene, uh, she'd walk on and transform us into a new reality. So we'd be in both the first scene and second scene, but they'd be completely new reality. So everything would kind of bleed into one another. But then the hope is that the scene work is good too. You know, the form is crazy and chaotic, but the scenes feel like real scenes with, with real people. You know, that was one of the hardest things to do because you, when you're in kind of like weirdo experimental dream logic that all of the scenes, you know, are, are super, super ass weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like TJ was explaining it, like uh, the example he gave was, you know, at the back of the stage, there'd be a window and you'd see someone pressed against it. And in the moment, it could be, you know, someone outside a window or it could be someone below the ice and that's the floor and you're looking at them. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And so like the, the, the suspension of reality was just so broad in this show is like, you know, it could be anything. And I, I, the, the way you described it is, is the way I kind of understood it from TJ is like a dream. You know, it's just it's flowing from one thing into the next and it makes perfect sense in the moment. But obviously, if you take a step back, you're like, they're not linked at all. <laughs> yeah. And, and scenes can come, come back at any time and can be edited at any time. So they're not kind of scheduled in any way like they are in the Herald. I think it also was a reaction against the Herald. Uh, and already the, the Herald structure had been started to bend a little bit in, in Chicago. But the idea of like, here's scene one, scene two, scene three, and now second beat, scene one, scene two, scene three, you know. Yeah. We definitely were tired of that. 
And so it's almost more like a DJ kind of playing mix master where if like you've got your first track and then it's like, oh, bring up the bass on the second track and then gradually fade it into that second track. And I'm like, oh, and here's that first track again. Whoa, well, here's the, what's this third thing coming in, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and hopefully by the end of the show, if you're doing like a 45 minute show with 12 people in a JTS Brown, you've got maybe... 10 to 15 different scenes or vibes or things you've been exploring and they can all kind of weave into each other by the end of the show, you know? And so when it's really clicking, uh, you're constantly finding inspiration. You're not like on the sidelines of like, okay, I need to do my second beat of this scene. How would I do it? It's like you're reacting to stuff that's going on on stage and everything is a potential point of transformation, you know? Mm. Uh, And in a way, it's almost just like inspired by the short form game Freeze Tag, you know, which is like you're... Uh, you know, because people are doing a lot of playing environment and using their bodies in interesting ways. And so when there's lots of interesting stage pictures, you're constantly finding uh, physical inspiration that can lead you into the next scene or remind you of previous scenes uh, you've done. Wow. And I, I, from a directorial perspective, what were the kind of the major challenges with the group while developing the form? Um. Slightly getting people to buy in on, on that, you know. Um, you know, there there is differences of levels of commitment, you know. But by the time we opened, I think everybody realized that they were part of of something special, you know. Uh, you know, in, in a group of fourteen improvisers, you know, there's gonna be a range of like the mo the more artistic. Uh, and experimenty people to the guys who are just like, I just want to be funny. You know? <laughs> so it's like finding a way for the guys that are like, I just want to be funny to like show their strengths and like do the thing that they do, but also adhere to the the goals of the form, you know, with, without destroying it. So I think everyone bought in by the end. Um, and like actually like communicating like these more experimental moves uh, like I still want it to be accessible to the audience. I don't want it to feel like this is some weirdo performance arts piece <laughs> that they don't understand. You yeah. know, um, I want you know I want the audience to be able to appreciate what we're doing with it. You know, so you know nothing is so weird or advanced that they haven't already seen it in film or TV or in theater or in music in in some way. You know, it's just maybe. Uh, you know, so so it it can't feel like randomness. You know, mm. uh, it they've got to they've got to see the seeds uh, of of inspiration uh, in the thing, and so you, you still want the audience to feel like they're participating uh, in it in in a passive way. Um, and like I said before, getting the scene work to be to be solid uh, as opposed to to random. You know, you you can have the a few weirdo things, but they, you know, they can't last for long, you yeah, know, that yeah. they can serve almost as like buffers between the scenes or as segues, you know, or transitional pieces. Um, like one of my reference points are like the Terry Gilliam cartoons and Monty Python, you know, <laughs> yeah. or the way that Mr. Show goes from scene to scene, you know, so you can have like these linking devices that are weirder, but then we, we tried to always have like a spotlight scene in the show, just like a good two person scene that was not edited or fucked with in any way to just like let two people shine and have a good relationship for a while and then edit with the, the craziness again. 
Wow. And uh, TJ said as well, like from the audience perspective, he said like it got a good response because there were so many levels from which the audience could enjoy it. You know, if they were just looking at the surface level of what was happening in front of them, you know, obviously they'd get, you know, a, a kick out of that. But if they looked at maybe the layers going deeper and deeper into the meaning and that kind of thing, that, you know, the more nuanced audience could enjoy that as well. So it was very multifunctional for audiences. Yeah, I mean that's one thing I really enjoy about group long form is the connections and the and the callbacks, you know, mm-hmm. and allowing people to, you know, you don't have to be heavy handed with theme or metaphor. People will find their own connections there, and I yeah. think it being a visceral experience and that people could go anywhere in the space, and it being a lot more physical than most improv was at the time. It was not going to be talking heads, you know. Yeah. Uh, that uh, if people are playing furniture and then suddenly the furniture comes to life and becomes the next scene, you know, uh, I think the audience kind of enjoys the uh, the visceral nature of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to ask you about close quarters. Um, we've kind of already covered a little bit, but how, you said it developed you as a performer. Was it that it was more character driven as opposed to other forms where it would be more kind of relationship scene, you know, in the close quarters, you'd really have to commit to your character because you're going to be playing them at length. Yeah. The basic concept of that form is, uh, character is not more or less the same place at more or less the same time. Um, if it was an hour long show, we were maybe covering 15 minutes of real time. We would be replaying moments, you know, from different perspectives, uh, over and over, and probably by the end of the show, each performer, where there was eight of us in the ensemble, had developed four or five distinct characters, and they were all kind of like bleeding into one another's scenes. You know, so if mm. it's at a, sh- a shopping mall or whatever, uh, I might be the the manager of the toy store, as well as the mall Santa, as well as a dad trying to find my daughter in the food court. You know, yeah, and so I've got to jump back and forth between those different characterizations. They've all got to be specific and memorable. Um, so I, I've got to distinguish them physically and vocally and emotionally. Uh, so it's clear to the audience, um, as well as keep track of all of the, you know, the time and space bending that we're doing, uh, within that. So of like, it really was like patting your head while rubbing your belly. Like there was so much going on, but that was the main thrust of the rehearsal process with Noah uh, is us, is him trying to get us into deeper, characters and deeper relationships um than we would be doing on our herald teams or in the armando show you know yeah and like he he really made it clear of like i don't want your your funny gags you know uh i I want you to get real uh with your scene work and really be plausible people in plausible relationships yeah i've seen noah perform a few times like in armando's and um carl and the passions he's in that team as well right yeah, yeah, that was my last team in Chicago before I moved to LA. Was it? I saw them perform a few times. Like he's he's hilarious on stage, but I'm just curious what he's like as a coach. Oh, he's incredible. I mean, he's. I mean, it's not that different than how I was describing Dell or Besser, which is like if you get praise from Noah, you know it's deserved. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, to to this day, Bob Dassey and I still talk about. Um, you know, what Noah you would usually do, I mean, he's the exception to that side coaching thing of like, he would rarely side coach. Instead, he really would make you sit in your stink for a while. Um, and if there was a scene that just wasn't working, like it would go forever. And then he would say, okay, okay, uncle, uncle you know, Jesus. like, please stop the pain, you know? Um, 
which I think we could take, you know, because we had been doing it for a while at this time. I mean, we were among the best players at IO. We just weren't ready for something this advanced yet mm. as, as he was trying to, to do. So uh, I think that was actually, I, I wouldn't do that with a level one student, you know, yeah. make them do a bad scene for that long. But for somebody who was pretty proud of themselves, you know, and yeah. had a pretty high opinion of what they thought their improv <laughs> skill set, to know that you could still suck that much, you know, was uh, was was good to to know that. And those lessons that that he taught us really stuck. Then you know, like, and then you know, like, oh, I don't ever want a scene to feel like that again. And no, and Noah is telling me to do this thing, and it'll work better. And I'm going to do that thing now. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be quite a humbling experience being coached by him from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but also inspirational. Like you knew like you were doing something that nobody had tried to do before. And like that, that was exciting. So it, it was the right blend of harsh and inspirational. Got you, got you. And um, you obviously moved out to LA and you started teaching at uh, IO West and you actually won multiple awards for teaching out there. How did you find teaching in LA? You know, I, I got here in 2002. So it's nearly been 20 years that, that I've been here. And it was, it was interesting because it really was like getting back to Chicago in the early 90s was where LA was in the early aughts. Um, so that must have been fairly the, nostalgic for you then? You know, coming back to that kind of period. But also frustrating you know, because <laughs> you've you've come from a community that's very advanced, you know, and where yeah. the infrastructure is really, you know, you'd seen that infrastructure grow over 10 years in Chicago. And now I'm in L.A. where, like, you still have to explain to people, you know, what certain basic things are, you know. And you've got, you know, the same thing, like, attrition of, like, people dropping out, like, right away because they got the one class that they wanted or their agent, you know, who wanted them to, you know, get more commercial auditions told them to take one improv class, you know. Oh, um, right. So, and also, like, we're in Hollywood, you know. Paul Valancourt started the uh, the Iowa West Theater as an offshoot of the Chicago one, you know, and all those Chicago guys that I knew had been running it for a few years and just getting it off the ground. And the their permanent space in Hollywood, where I was, uh, it closed down, I think, in 2019, um, had just opened when, when I got to L.A. So that was kind of exciting. And it was, had a, a great bar out front and, you know, three spaces and uh kind of a, a cabaret space where people could wander in and out with uh with drinks that's that part of the problem there was the bar was always way more fun than most of the shows were. <laughs> 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 but it, it was it was great for fostering a sense of community so i really got to see the community grow uh at the ios specifically and then eventually, Second City had already been offering classes when I got there. I taught for them as well. I really saw that community grow. UCB eventually opened up uh, their classes and their space. So I, I got to see them skyrocket, you know, in that time. The Groundlings yeah. were all, already in L.A., obviously, and they've always been popular and, and well-known. But I got to see the Chicago style of uh, of UCB, Second City, and I.O., really kind of take precedence in LA uh, and, and a great community really grow. And then of course, since, you know, the, 
the best performers from New York and Chicago eventually have to try their hand in LA. And a lot of those best performers are also the best teachers. So I really felt, you know, by the time that iOS closed, that LA was the best place to study in America. It had the, the most great teachers of anywhere. Wow. Well, that makes sense because a lot of the big names from Chicago and New York, like you said, would have been there and doing shows. So you're seeing them perform and obviously getting the opportunity to learn from some of them as well, which just would have been incredible, like yourself. Yeah. But um, no, I've heard different stories about um, classes in LA. Like some people are there because they love improv, but then you get the other side of it, like you said, where it's a lot of actors just doing it so they can tick a box. So it could be quite inspiring or it could be quite heartbreaking at times. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, most people in LA think they're an actor, you know, or you know, or, or want to be an actor. Um, UCB started attract to attract more writers uh, as well, and I think their system lends itself to the writing mentality yeah. uh, a lot more. You know, so one thing I say in you know watching improv students in LA is you get these wonderful actors who are charismatic and emotional and move all over the place, and they have no idea what's happening in their own. Scene. <laughs> <laughs> and you have these writers who are funny and brilliant and have incredible premises and you don't believe anything they're doing because they're staring at the floor and kind of mumbling their lines and laughing at themselves nervously, you know? Oh, wow. So that's why I say that like that ideal blend is, you know, finding your inner actor and your inner writer and getting them in perfect balance, you know? Mm. So it's like, oh, my, my writer just wrote this line for me. How should I adjust my performance to feel about it? Or like, oh, I, I have this physicality or this emotion. How can I write stuff for that actor that that's within <laughs> me? You know? So I, I think the best improvisers really get that blend. But if somebody is on one end of that performance scale, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get them to a total 50-50 balance, but you can at least introduce concepts and techniques that give them uh, a little more to push them in the other direction. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And you've obviously done quite a few renowned US comedy shows in your time. And, you know, how has improv helped you as a comedic actor? Oh, I mean, it's, it's everything. Uh, it, and in addition that I'll say that like the touring and performing for second city, you know, uh, that, that gave me strength as well. You know, when, when you're doing set scenes, you know, you just start to discover the math of comedy in a way, like, uh, I, there were some sketches I did 200, 250 times at second city. And then, and then you start, you start to learn, um, this is, uh, you know, if I take a pause here, there's a laugh. If I deliver the line right away, there's no laugh. You know, I, it needs to be a three second pause. You know, I need to go up on the end of this line and that's funnier. You know, yeah. I do the gesture after the line, you know, and, and it's not like I'm making it sound more mechanical than it is because it's really, it starts to become more instinctive after a while, but you do start to learn stuff like that. Um, I mean, improv just makes me more aware of my partner, you know? Um, and if you took a straight acting class from somebody, they'd tell you that all acting is listening anyway, you know? Yeah. So I, I think if there are people who, whose only formal classroom experiences with improv, who I think are incredible actors, you know, that don't need to go to drama school because they've learned everything just from being in the moment, 
supporting and validating everything that their partner is doing, you know, and kind of reacting line by line of what's going on. I mean, that's the same thing you're doing in scripted work, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, I mean, like I said, I was a theater major. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot, but I didn't really understand acting until I'd done improv for, for a few years. How do you prepare for shows? Do you have a routine or anything? Like if you're about to do an improv show, do you have any kind of pre-show rituals? I do like to warm up. Not every veteran performer does. Some people feel like it's beneath them. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm sitting in with some team, you know, that I've never played with before, that's maybe a little younger and they have some goofy warm up, I'll do that goofy warm up with them. Like, I don't care. Like, I like to warm up. Um... My main group uh, over the past few years has been Orange Tuxedo with my wife Carla, uh, and we do we do warm ups before every show. We do like things like one word story, or we do just like three line scenes. We do mirror exercises, like all those goofy things that you do in a level one class, you know. Because yeah. I I need to get in the proper headspace. I need to feel like out out of my head and into the head of my partner. Uh, a little bit and then there's other shows that are maybe more casual where you know it's just you chatting with your friends for like 20 minutes backstage before they say it's time to go on and and that's good enough for that show too but I feel like I need to connect with my fellow players in in some way you know the feeling of like rolling in a little late you know maybe grabbing one drink at the bar and then just going on stage with people like I don't feel like that's that's going to be a good show. You know, I, I need to check in in some way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same. I, I have to warm up. Otherwise, I don't feel as present in the scenes and that kind of thing, especially at the start. Yeah. And uh, what's it like doing two prov with your partner, Carla? I mean, uh, what's that like? Well, what I say for people who are interested in two prov is that it's both the easiest and the hardest form of improv, which mm. is... You're in it the entire time. You don't get any downtime on the sidelines to think about what you should do next. You know, you have to be in it uh, for the duration. But it's also the easiest in that you only need to find one other mind that you connect with. Uh, You know, that's the frustrating part about Herald teams for people, which is like, oh, there's seven people on the team. I connect with some of these people and not so much, you know, and then there's that one guy that I don't want to do a scene with at all. (laughs) Um, So, like, I'll you know, expecting eight minds to connect and see the same things at the same time and agree that they mean the same thing, that's hard. But mm. two people, it's f- fairly easy to, to find that, <laughs> you know. But when it's your your romantic partner as well, you know, I think it took a while for us to find that trust um, that it was a separate thing, you know, from our, from our marriage, you know. Um, and... And also, like, I had been doing it longer, too, so, like, there's that d- division of uh, of experience, you know, but it's it's so easy now, you know, because there, there's never, it's the same way with Bob and Rich and Dasariski, uh, or, you know, Gene Villapico I perform with in quartet. When you perform with somebody for years and you know them for years as a friend, there's no guesswork in terms of what they're doing, you know, you don't need to try to figure out where, where are they going with this? You know, you really do start to read each other's minds. And so, um, and I think when you have a shared life with somebody like I do with Carla, you know, if like something comes up and it maybe matches something that we watched on Netflix two weeks ago, you know, 
uh, not to like make a reference just for making a reference, but it's like <laughs> she'll see where I'm going with something because we have that shared experience. Yeah. You know? And so you, you never know that with randos that you're playing. <laughs> no, because I, 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 like, I saw you guys perform and it was fantastic. And there was such a sense of joy in the play between the two of you and like you reacted so well off one another and it was it was absolutely hysterical but the characters were so rich that you were both doing as well it was so much fun to watch oh that's so nice sean yeah joy is is to me the ultimate improv compliment you know like there's got to be joy Mm. there you know and that becomes contagious to the audience as well um and i think to i always say to my students that the bare minimum is always make a choice and have fun you know, I hope you'll do a lot more than just that, but at the bare minimum, there always has to be make a choice and have fun. Yeah. And I think uh, have fun feels obvious, but I mean, you've seen and done enough improv that you know that it's not always there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can be a labor. <laughs> yeah. And then if if you're not having fun, how do you think the audience feels? You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's got to start with the performers. Yeah, and then you can get that, you know, you see teams where they're putting no effort in, but they're just, like, laughing at themselves kind of thing, and it just becomes kind of self-indulgent. So you're kind of like, you know, you need to find that balance, I suppose, where you're committing, but you're also having fun so the audience can enjoy it as well. Yeah, and I think that kind of laughing uh, that you're describing is really more of a nervous habit than actual fun. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's just painful to watch. <laughs> yeah. And where did the name Orange Tuxedo come from, just out of curiosity? Well, we had two cats at the time, one of whom was a tabby and one of whom was a tuxedo. So <laughs> both of those cats both of those cats have since died, but we, oh, uh, we, <laughs> we, we keep their memory... <laughs> Uh, alive through the name of the team. Amazing. That's the best origin story for yeah. the team name I've heard. What's your worst improv show experience and what did you learn from it? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's probably, again, you know, something that I've totally wiped out of my mind uh, at this point. I mean, it had to be one of those early days in, uh, in Chicago. Um, I just think in those, I, I, I think the classroom is great, but it's all theoretical, right? The classroom or the yeah. rehearsal room, it's all necessary. And it's those mistakes that you make in front of paying audiences <laughs> that, really, that really stick in your brain. So th- yeah. that's one thing I say to my students is like, uh, the only way to get better is to make horrific mistakes in front of paying audiences. Um, or actually... Audiences got in for free. That'll that'll be okay too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, make, <laughs> but, but it's worse. It's worse in front of a paying audience, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many times in those early days of improv where I'm like, I'm on the sidelines. I'm preparing for the thing that I think is gonna kill. I'm like, this is gonna kill when I go out there and do this. Uh, everybody's gonna know exactly what I mean by by this, and they're gonna love it. You know, and then you try that thing and you're like, oh, no, that didn't work at all. My team didn't understand what I was doing. The audience didn't get the reference. It was totally ignored and it totally stunk. And now I know I'm never going to do that thing again. Or if I'm going to try something similar, I'm going to execute it better. You know, so yeah. that that's what I mean that those lessons really do, you know, stick in your brain. But, I mean, we're talking about nearly 30 years ago some of this stuff so. 
That's fair enough. If you got pain point yeah. aim but I'll forgive you, Dory. <laughs> I don't I don't have an anecdote at the ready. <laughs> Dory, that's absolutely fine. And what advice would you give to up and coming improvisers? Well, so much. How much time do we, <laughs> do we have? You know, but I, I think like that joy thing is 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 helpful. Um, and I think what makes it unique as an art form is that it's collaborative. Hmm. Um, you know, I say you know if you can't get cool with that, um, there's all sorts of great solo art forms like poetry and sculpture that are out there where you don't need to work with other people. Um, <laughs> but improv is collaborative. And so you need to, uh, you need to be your best self, you know, so of like developing personal confidence and comfort is, is key while also reveling and enjoying in the performance of others, you know? So it's, it's the perfect blend of being part of the group and also being an individual. Um, and showing what you have to offer that is unique to you. Um, the last thing I'd want to do is turn people all into the same type of improviser or into images of me. You know, yeah. I need to unlock what their gifts and what they have to offer. So I think um, realize that when you're starting a life in improv, you're going to reinvent the art form in your own image and you're going to do stuff and say stuff that nobody else has done because you're you, you know, don't try to imitate other people or feel like there's some sort of platonic ideal that you're living up to, uh, do it the way that you do it. And then if you eventually teach, then people will learn your way, but they won't do your way. They'll incorporate that with other teachers and other approaches that they got and their own impulses and their own tastes to form their own version of it. So I think it's such a personal art form. And I think don't compare yourself to other people. You know, uh, you've got to find whatever the, the best version of yourself is for the improv stage. Ah, oh, so true. So, so true. I think you've already answered this, but I'll just ask it in case something else comes to mind. But what's the best improv show you've ever seen? Well, it's hard because, you know, those teams that I, I mentioned, Jazz, Freddie, and the family, are definitely mm -hmm. the most influential on me. But also knowing that, of like, this was close to 30 years ago, and I'm like, I'm wondering if I saw, like, a tape of one of those shows, <laughs> if it would hold up in the same way, you know? Yeah. Because... I'm I'm a different person. I see things in a different way. I'm sure, you know, all those people are incredibly talented. I'm sure those shows would still be good. But would it compare to the best stuff that I've seen since then? I'd like to think that the art form has evolved, you know, uh, beyond that. Um, I mean, in terms of two-person, it, it's hard to top TJ and Dave, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I've certainly I've played with them uh, a bit and, and seen their show many times. Um, and... Uh, in terms of teams, you know, like at, around the time I was leaving Chicago, there was like the Reckoning and People of Earth were Herald teams that were kind of coming into their own as, as groups that really kind of pushed the uh, the form. Um, man, one time when Carla and I were at the Del Close Marathon in New York, we wandered into the second stage uh, or maybe even the third stage. You know, it was like it was off uh, a few blocks away in Chelsea from where the UCB theater was. We didn't even know what the, what the show was. And it was two young women uh, and they did a show called omelet. And it was just two old ladies who were at a diner 
um, uh, eat, eating omelets, and that was as good as anything I've ever seen. To be honest, to be honest with you, and I don't know what they ended up doing after that. I didn't. Uh, I, I think they were from Chicago. You know, uh, I haven't kept track of what their names were. And I haven't met them since. You know, but. You know, that's that's the nature of the art form sometimes. Like, sometimes you wander into a show and it's just perfect. Yeah, I love those moments as well because it catches you off guard and it just hits you so much harder. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Ah, I love that. And um, who would you love to improvise with? I mean, I've been lucky enough to have been in comedy for so long that I've uh, I've met a lot of my idols and then a lot of the people that I've performed with have gone on to uh to be uh you know important people in the in the comedy world so i've I've been lucky in that regard i guess i'd like to play with obama though oh brilliant answer (laughs) why i did not expect that (laughs) i mean he's a chicagoan right you know yeah i'm sure he's seen some shows in his days you know i think he'd be very supportive um, I'd say he'd be I quite witty as well. He'd pick up. What's I think going he'd on. be witty. You know, yeah. he'd pick up on everything. His reference level is very high. I think because he's a politician, he probably wouldn't take big risks. <laughs> you know, I would probably have to be a little more absurd, and he would have to be a little more voice of reason, probably. But uh, yeah, let's see what we can do to make that two man happen. <laughs> Watch this space, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, is there anything you want to promote at the moment, Craig? Have you got anything, uh, any shows coming up or anything anybody can check out? Well, I do a, I'm part of the cast of a, a bi-weekly improv podcast, or wait, semi-weekly. It's twice a week. <laughs> twice a week. So it's semi-weekly. Yeah. Sometimes people use that that incorrectly. Um, <laughs> uh, bi-weekly would be, yeah, ev- every two weeks. This is two a week. So it's semi-weekly and it's called Alchemy This. And it's, uh, Kevin Pollack, uh, the noted, uh, actor in standup, uh, hosts it. Wow. And, uh, it's a, it's a regular cast of about five people and we have frequent guests and it's, uh, it's just a blast. We've been recording it over Zoom, uh, during the, uh, the pandemic, uh, we did, did it in a studio before that. But uh, on any podcast app you can find, uh, Alchemy This is a long-form improv podcast. And uh, Carla and I uh, have, I'm not sure when this is coming out. We've got a, a couple shows uh, with Orange Tuxedo booked. But if you follow Orange Tux Improv on uh, on Twitter, you can find out about our new shows. Or just follow me on at Kikowski on Twitter, and I'll probably post anything that I have coming up on there. Fantastic. Well, uh, Craig, thank you so much for t- uh, coming on today. It was absolutely fascinating talking with you. And I wish you all the best to you and Carla out in LA. Stay safe. And hopefully I'll see you guys in the not too distant future. Thanks, Sean. You too. This was a blast. Oh, what a great guy. It was so nice talking with Craig. He's such an interesting improv mind. I'd highly recommend checking out any of Craig's shows, his classes, his workshops, you will not be disappointed. Now, next week, I'm talking with Fran Reed. She's a London-based improviser with the teams Bareback Kings, Dreamweaver Quartet, Franston and Pickle, to name but a few. She's one of my favorite London improvisers, so I was absolutely over the moon to talk with Fran. So definitely check that out next week, guys. And big shout out, as always, to Crowander for the theme music, Space Fun. Well, that's it for this week, guys. Have a good one. See you next week. Bye.